turn in your Bibles to Psalm 138. We're continuing our series. We got about four weeks to go, five weeks to go uh, in our Summer Through the Psalms series. Oh, by the way, I, I forgot, I did forget one thing. If you are a member of our church, if you've gone through membership, if you completed the process, we got a stack of these church membership books out at the desk. Please grab one, it's yours, and we want you to read it. We didn't have them, we did our first membership, so please grab one of these. We'd love you to have it and read it. Psalm 138, so turn there in your Bibles or your devices. Um, One thing that's great about the gospel, and we say this a lot, I say this a lot because I want you guys to understand that the gospel ultimately is an act of freedom for our lives, all right? So what Christ did on the cross created a freedom for us to be vulnerable and to be honest about who we are, who our identity is, and the things that we struggle with, and the mess that we find ourselves in, like, all the time. And church is just kind of a mess. So I'm up here, as the pastor, telling you, guess what? Church, this thing, it's just messy. It's just messy all the time. And what the Psalms tell us is what God has for us when we're honest to Him, when we come before Him with the mess. And what we've primarily been seeing, because I've been taking us through psalms that David have specifically written or been attributed to David, is that this is a guy that's familiar with just the chaos and the mess of life. And he writes about his experience through that in light of God's love and his faithfulness and his promise to him in the middle of the mess. So, man, we're just, we're just given some great principles and practices for us, and that's what I've been loving about the Psalms. Now, having said all that, when I tell you that the gospel has given us freedom and it's allowed us to be vulnerable, I can look all of you guys right now in the eye and I can say that I, me, Ronnie Martin, man, I have identity issues. Like, I've struggled with identity issues, like, since birth, I think. I wasn't, you know, I don't remember when I came out, but I think I've struggled with them right since that time, and Part of that is I have a bent in me that's always asking the question, who am I? Man, I'm just concerned. It's just something that kind of bears down on me. That's part of my weight is that I struggle with this identity thing. It's my natural tendency when I experience disturbances in my life. That's my go-to. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean? Who am I now? Because this is happening to me. So what God does in a psalm like this is he refreshes our memory, is what we're going to see, what he does in a psalm like this. I'm so concerned, and many of you are too, we're all concerned to a level about our identity. For me, it's just one of my big ones. But I'm so concerned about who I am that I forget it's most important for me to remember who God is and what he's done. To be thankful to God for God. So that's why we're diving into what's called a thanksgiving psalm here in chapter 138. So if I were to define thankfulness for you guys, we're to bust open the, the Merriam-Webster's or click on it, however we get there now. Thankfulness defined as feeling or expressing gratitude. It's about being appreciative. But what I want us to see this morning is not just thankfulness defined, but I want to see thankfulness refined kind of get lodged into our minds and our hearts. And here's what the Bible tells us, the story of the gospel. This is what, how it describes thankfulness. An expression of the heart 
born from a person's identity in Christ that forms a way of living. Let me say that again. An expression of the heart born from a person's identity in Christ that forms a way of living. This crazy theologian that you probably would disagree with half of the things he wrote back in the, late, in the early 20th century, a guy named G.K. Chesterton, he said this, and I love this. I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought and that gratitude is, get this, happiness doubled by wonder. I mean, this dude was not even a poet and he just like came out with this one day, right? I would maintain that thanks to the highest form of thought and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. And what that does is that creates in us, when we understand that biblically, what that does is it creates something to be rather than something that we do. So what our text is going to bring us to, what it's going to tell us, is that thanksgiving is both a principle and a practice. Amen. And, and don't think that God doesn't have a thankful people in mind when he looks down into this warehouse this morning. And what he does is he removes layers in our lives to remind us not what we've taken for granted, but who we've taken for granted. So thankfulness, as understood and how we want to understand it, is not just politeness. It's not just a politeness. It's the shape our lives become after we've discovered our true need and then devote ourselves to the one who has the power to fill it. It's a life lived believing everything we have has been given to us. And then as we mature, we begin to put everything into this category, which includes both the good and the bad and the ugly. And this is what we need to understand. God is not asking us to say thank you. It's not that thin. He's commanding us to be thankful. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body and be thankful. God wants an identity of being that will activate our doing because it's motivated by Christ's ruling in our hearts. That peace that we get from Christ that forms an identity in us. Because here's kind of the dilemma that we have. We can be thankful for what we have. But what happens when we don't have it? We can be thankful for who we are. But what happens when we lose our identity? The Christian is someone who finally understands who he's thankful to so that he can see what he is thankful for. Does that make sense? A saved person this, this categorical difference between saved and not saved is that a saved person never strays so far from what he was saved from that he forgets. Man, as much as God sanctifies us, as much as he pulls us out of death, man, we're still kind of close to the edge of that whole thing. And this transfer from death to life, it's so earth-shattering that we kind of shudder and quake when we just glance over the shoulder and we look back and we see there was a time when death had us completely swallowed. We were swallowed by it. 
In fact, one of the ways that Paul describes the ungodly or the people that are still swallowed by death is that he says they're unthankful. In Romans 1.21 he says, For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they didn't honor Him as God or they didn't give thanks to Him. In the book of Exodus, Moses He has this meeting with the children of Israel after they've been grumbling and complaining. And he says, look, just so you know, guys, you're grumbling and complaining. It's not actually against me. It's actually against God. And God follows it up later and he says, Moses, I just got a question for you. It's a little rhetorical because obviously when I ask you something, I kind of know the answer. He says this, how long will this wicked generation grumble against me? And so we realize that when we have unthankfulness circulating through our heads and through our hearts, we realize that what we're doing is we're pushing against the reality that God is loving, that God is faithful, and that God always keeps his promises. And so what we are looking at this morning, what we are looking at as a church is to have a gospel-given gratefulness in our lives. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know if you noticed that line there, giving thanks always and for everything. Like he just didn't leave out a few things that he like picks up with in chapter 6. That's the whole shebang right there. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Christ. So when I was a kid, there was nothing I wanted more than a mini bike because I loved motorcycles. My dad had motorcycles. I talk a lot about my dad and motorcycles because it informed a big part of my life. I'm looking at my wife right now, who I think told me four weeks ago, please do not tell another story about your dad and motorcycles. Sorry, babe. I love you. So the old guy finally uh, gets my older brother, not me, a mini bike. How do you like that? But when I was five years old, he started teaching me how to ride it. And at some point, I was going in circles, and I was learning throttle control, and I pegged it, and I started heading for a wall, and my, my wrist was locked, and I was scared to death because I'm five. And Sorry, Ollie Watson, but I was five, and I was scared to death, and my wrist is locked, and I'm heading for the wall, and I can't stop. And at the last minute, I feel myself pull back. The old guy had ran. He grabbed me by the shoulder. He pulled me back. He fell back. I fell into his arms. I was saved from the brick wall of Irvine, California. That's what happened. That's what happened. My dad was out for three weeks with a disfigured back, and it was never the same. Dude was tweaked forever. Guy would like lean over like this, and his back was out for like a month after that. But he saved me. He saved me, saved his son from impending doom. And I remember how shocked and I remember how scared I was when I fell back. And I remember turning and I remember my response being to bury my head into his chest because even at five years old, what I understood was that I'd been rescued from death. The gospel is that we were rescued from death. And that, our response to that our identity in that 
is godly and gospel thankfulness. Never forgetting the moment when we were rescued. Thankful because of God. Understanding God is faithful because He is God. I've talked too much. Let's get to the text. Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Verse 3. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. And then he says in verse 6, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty, he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. And then he says in 8, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of of your hands. This is God's word. The introduction was not God's word. So this is a psalm that is attributed to David. Okay, we're not really given a lot of insight into what time of life it was written in or what period in his kingship this might have been written in. I think some of the language kind of clues us in that David has lived some life and he's taken some hits and he's faced off on some things that have caused him to be able to pause and go before the Lord, refresh his memory, and give thanks to God for being the God of love and faithfulness and promises kept. That's kind of what we're seeing when we look here at what David's going through. And I think what we're seeing here is two points in view. Number one, we're seeing David's thankfulness. And two, we're seeing God's faithfulness. We see in verse one, he gives this wholehearted thanks to God. And it's funny because he says that. He says, I'm giving you thanks with all of me, with my whole heart. And then he says, I will sing you a praise before all the gods, before all the earthly things that desire, that threaten to take the place of you in my life, or in my kingdom, or in my heart. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So David is acknowledging something here about God. I'm giving you all of my heart, and I'm singing these songs before you, before all the other gods who are worthless idols. And then you see him doing something physical here where he bows down, in verse 2, toward the temple, remembering the place where God dwells. Remembering that that is the place where God is near to his people. Then he goes on to say that he's grateful to God for his loyalty, for his love, his loyal love, for his undying faithfulness. And then he says, when I called upon you, when I call you, you actually hear me and you answer my prayers. We see that in verses 2 and 3. And then he says, not only that, but I'm hopeful in verses 4 and 5. I'm hopeful for the nations who will one day give thanks and sing of God's glory. And that kind of clues us into what we see when we get to the New Testament. 
when this gospel message, this God, this Messiah, was not just for the Jewish people like we learned when we went through Ephesians, but this was a God that was going to be interceding for the non-Jewish nations. This was going to be a God for all people, for all nations, for all tongues, for all tribes. So there's nothing in this list that shouldn't be copy and pasted into our own life. And we want to remember David. We want to remember what this guy's been through. We want to remember the loss that David experienced that brought him to this place of wholeheartedness before God. Because I think what it reminds us of is our half-heartedness. It reminds me of my half-heartedness. We withhold from God. Think about the ramifications or even the possibilities of that. We withhold from God who withheld nothing from us, and he's actually the one that holds anything to withhold. We don't thank God with our whole heart. And here's the thing. I don't think God allows us to phone it in forever if we're his children. I just don't think he allows for our lives, if we are truly one of his children, if we have repented of our sins, if the gospel has taken hold of our lives because of Christ's work on the cross, he doesn't just allow us to perpetually sink and sink and sink into half-heartedness. He doesn't do it. It's not good enough to say... I'm part of a church that believes this and believes that. It's not good enough to say I'm part of an organization that stands for this. It's not good enough to say I'm part of this conservative movement. It's not good enough to say, but I'm against things that God's against. Now, all those things are well and and good, maybe depending on the identity that we draw from them. But here's what God does in those things. He has a way of disarming those surface beliefs that we think make up the person that we are. What's so great about God, what you can count on God to do if you are his, is that he will declutter your heart. And he just doesn't allow us to just continually throw him a bone or reserve our scraps for him. He gets us to a place like David where we have no choice but to give him our whole hearts because we are too weak and needy to offer him half-heartedness anymore. Praise God. Because you know what's interesting about half a heart? If I went to any one of you right now, God forbid, and just sliced your heart open, I'm just getting... I know it's getting kind of scary movie right now, but if I went to you and cut your heart in half, you wouldn't really have a beating heart anymore. I didn't go to medical school, but I think that's accurate. Half-heartedness reveals a heart with holes in it. And man, some of you are here today. Listen, what God's word is telling us. Some of you are here today and you are feeling weight you are feeling tension, and you are feeling despondency. Some of you guys feeling that this morning? I'm feeling some of that this morning. The thought is, I can't keep waiting for my marriage to work itself out. 
I can't. I can't keep hoping that something's going to change at school or at work or in the family home. I can't keep staying a comfortable distance from church because there's just nothing comfortable about that any longer. I can't keep thinking that everything's going to work out because then I'll give God what's his because nothing's working itself out and this is going on years now. It's precisely these moments that God uses to wake us up from this slow, slow death of self-sufficiency. We can only imagine what caused David to bring the Lord this type of song. But we know, we know about David's life. We know the loss that he experienced. We know the trouble that he had. We know the betrayal. We know the wayward children that were part of his life. We know the adultery. We know the murder. Then there were the victories. The favor he had with God and his people. We know about his obedience to God. We know about his humility that when he sinned, how he would come before God and repent of his sin. That is why David was able to come before God with this kind of wholeheartedness. So when you look at your life, what is there to bring you to that wholeheartedness before God? If you think about that right now, if you think about the losses mixed with the victories of your life that you believe God has sovereignly brought you, what is there to bring you out of your half-heartedness? And if you're not sure, God's going to bring some opportunities to remind you of the way that God answers your prayers. Because it says here in verse 3 that when David called on God, God answered his prayer. But look at how God answered David's prayer. He said, you have strengthened my soul. He didn't say, I lost something and now I found it. He didn't say, the trouble I was in, I'm out. He said, in the midst of the trouble, we hear later on, you preserved my life. He didn't say the people that betrayed me were going to become BFFs now. He didn't say, all my wayward kids, they're heading on home. He said, you have strengthened my soul after hearing my voice in my prayer to you. And here's what I wonder, and I wonder about this myself, because I've seen the evidence of it. Would his answer to me be suitable? Is that a suitable enough answer for me? God strengthened David's soul. We think answers to our prayers are the granting of wishes and the removal of pain. But often, God does neither. Man, we just want that, we want that blue genie from the cartoon. We want the animated guy to come in with the songs and all the goodies and just go, here it is. Your wish is my command. 
His gift is that he remains with us to build something in us that was absent before. God is in the business of building. And what he's building in you is a new image, a new identity that looks like his son. And by the way, that's a permanent image. That's not something we have the luxury of taking on and off at will. That's not something we get off the cheap sales rack at Target. We grab it and we put it on and it fits us for a particular occasion or a moment in our life. That's not the kind of identity that God is calling to put on us because of his love and his faithfulness and his answered prayer by strengthening our soul. So we see David coming before the Lord with thankfulness and then we see God's faithfulness. We see David calling out God's faithfulness. He says, though the Lord is high, he gives attention to the low. This is not a God that just deals with the prominent people of society. This is a God that lowered himself through his son to the lowest of lows to save the lowest of sinners. And then we see David, he just walks through this. He says, though I'm in the midst of trouble, God has preserved me through it, verse 7. And then he says, he fulfills his purpose. This isn't somebody who's absent-minded. This is not somebody who wakes up with you in the morning and just goes, you know, I just haven't figured this one out today. Go on and do your thing, and I'll let you know by noon what I plan to do in terms of my purpose for you. A purpose before the foundation of the world that he will fulfill. And then you get to the very end there where David pleads before God. It's like he reminds him. It's like he says, don't forsake the work of your hands. I know all of this is true. Please stay true to it. Do you ever feel like that when you go before the Lord? Do you ever go before the Lord like that? Lord, if you're steadfast, stay steadfast for me. Because, dude, it is shaky these days. And I need that faithfulness. David's wholeheartedness was born out of something that allowed him to see God's fullness. And you know what's interesting? When we come to these defining moments in our life like David, it becomes glaringly obvious who we've been bowing down to. Anything other than God we bow before, it's just going to betray us. David looks back, he remembers how God's hand held back the fury of his enemies while his right hand delivered him from it. God's purpose for David could never be thwarted. What God had for David would be fulfilled because God's character would allow for no less. God's love can't be shaken his faithfulness can't be destroyed, which is why David can petition God at the end with such boldness and say, don't forsake the work of your hands. Don't do it. Remain who you are. So that the thankfulness that I offered you remains rooted in that truth. And the implications for this passage are, they're ginormous. They're ginormous. 
But I think the big picture for us today is simply this. We pursue godliness in our lives. And if you're a Christian, your aim is to be somebody who obeys God by pursuing godliness. And we do that. One of the ways we do that, by God's grace, is by practicing thankfulness. By practicing thankfulness. Because when we look at what's responsible for David's wholeheartedness, we see three things, right? We see steadfast love. We see faithfulness. We see kept promises by God. But then what we're seeing David doing here as he lives out his identity is that he's practicing something before the Lord. He's practicing thankfulness. Because all of those things are true. Because there's a line there when you look at God's love and his faithfulness and his promise keeping. Because it's not a wavering line, it means that the, the, the hope we throw on those things to anchor us, it's not going to waver. So I remember when we first moved to uh, Ashland, we rafted with little rubber rafts. I'm regretting this right now as I'm saying this. We rafted down the river because my wife talked me into it. And she said, I think it'll be really fun. I said, I, I just totally disagree, but I want to serve you. And that, you seem really excited about that. So let's go, let's go do that. So we rafted down the river, and it was, uh, it was dismal. It was dismal. What should have taken, I think, I'm not looking at my wife right now, an hour or two, ended up taking, wait for it, six hours. Because the river just had, had lost its, its flow, had lost its current. It was, just, it was just sort of resting. It didn't carry me like it was supposed to, right? So I complained because I actually had to use my arms to make any progress going down it, which obviously, if you're like me, that's outrageous that I should have had to have done that. That, brothers and sisters, does not resemble the pull and the force of God's love and faithfulness. The force and the quality and the consistency that we're talking about here, that David is laying out for us, it's not like that river that, by the way, I haven't been to since we moved here five years ago. It's actually more like how we would want to think of Niagara Falls. If you've ever been to the falls, when you go to Niagara, you don't see a lapse, do you, in the sort of the, the quantitative force of the falls as they're just going and they're going. It's relentless. There's never a time when it lacks any less power. That's why you go there. You don't go to Niagara just so it can be like a faucet that gets turned off and starts dripping. You go there to see the force, the never-ending power of those falls going over the edge. And here's the thing, we don't experience that kind of balanced and leveling love and consistent faithfulness from people. Because sin creates unsteadiness, not steadfastness. So we mistakenly, this is what we do, we attribute this type of love to God. Forgetting that God's love is more like a perpetual motion machine. There's nothing from the outside governing it. It's not like my lawnmower that needs gas. It's not like my laptop that needs electricity. What do you think reminded David of God's steadfast love and faithfulness? Well, it was probably those times when it seemed like there were few people he received any of it from. So God is so committed 
to the glory and exaltation of his name and his word, we see in verse 2 that when we call on him, he actually does this thing where he strengthens us by his word. That's what God is doing for David. God's love is steadfast because he never withholds it. He can be called faithful because he embodied what the word is defined as and what it implies. So what in your life reminds you that God has been steadfastly loving and relentlessly faithful? Because what David is calling us to do here is to rehearse those things. To refresh our memory of those things. And always start at the pinnacle of God's love, faithfulness, and promises kept, which is Jesus. That's where we start. Who is the master work and fulfillment of God's missionary intent. Because, listen, because God delivered the promised Messiah, we can have faith that that rest can be counted on. Here's what I mean. If I have the kind of friend who will loan me a million bucks, I'll never wonder whether they can spot me a 20. Will I? Matthew Henry, theologian, said this. An active faith can give thanks for a promise, though it be not as yet performed, knowing that God's bonds are as good as ready money. So it's kind of like we would say he's good for it. God is good for it. And we know that because he has a record of never not being good for it. Turn with me to Philippians 4 as we close it down. Philippians 4. Verse 6. Philippians 4, verse 6. This is Paul writing a letter to the Philippian church. He says something amazing that we've read quite a bit. But that I don't think we live very often. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So the question for us as we see David this morning is, are we practicing a life of thankfulness towards God that's rooted out of an identity of being his children? that has us pursuing godliness. Do you thank the Lord with your whole heart for his steadfast love and faithfulness? Maybe, just maybe, we strengthen our souls because we never call on God. We never call on his steadfast love or his faithfulness. And maybe you don't do that because you think there's a sin that you can't come back from. So you say, man, it, it was too, it's too much. It's too great. How can God not be angry with me? How could his love for me cover that much wickedness? Again, what do we know about David? We know that David had sins in his life that were equal and even much greater than the sins that we have and are going to commit. And yet, because God is love and he is faithful in remaining a loving God, David knew when he repented, God would remain who he was. And that's what David is thankful for. For God 
being God. And so David remembers. And it's interesting that God gives us the gift of memory, isn't it? It's interesting that God has given us the gift to recall. He didn't have to do that. Because without memory, thankfulness would only be momentary. David's heart has become full because he keeps his mind full of the ways God has preserved his life and fulfilled his purpose. He has stockpiled, if you will, his memories of God's love and faithfulness. And one of the things we have to understand is that when we go before the Lord with this level of wholehearted thankfulness, it's nothing short of an act of faith. It's an act of faith in God for both the seen and the unseen. You're thanking God for his past, present, and future grace. You know what's interesting? And this is what I've done for many parts in my life, and I think we all can relate to this is we keep little compartments in our lives, don't we? We're very compartmentalized people. We say, okay, God, I know that you have given me salvation, but there are these other things that I can do my own maintenance on. You do the big thing, but the little things I'll take care of. One for you, two for me. We kind of play those games. David, as we see here, he gives God all of his compartments. And that's because... In the economy and in the life and in the experience of David, God's love and faithfulness had proven to cover them all. Who do I have that answers me and strengthens my soul besides God? Who do I have that preserves me through trouble besides God? Who fulfills their purpose in my life besides God? It's in Christ that God has ultimately preserved my life. It's through Jesus that God has fulfilled his purpose in me. That's the greater thing that David is reaching toward that we're supposed to understand here. He will not forsake the work of his hands because he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Out of all people... Even when we grieve, we are people who have hope because our thankfulness is based in an identity that we have gotten through God's unending love and faithfulness in delivering us Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why we can practice thankfulness like people who are bearing an identity of it. Everything else is just politeness in our lives. And we can do it privately. We do it corporately here as a church. We also do it in our community groups. We break down into smaller groups. What are we doing in all of these things? We're giving thanks to God for God because of Jesus Christ, his son. That's what we're doing. That's the people that we're becoming because this is the identity that has now been laid upon us And it's the thing that's going to give us happiness. C.S. Lewis said, don't let your happiness depend on something you might lose. So if we are a thankful people who are depending on God and laying these things at his feet, knowing his love is steadfast and his faithfulness endures, we will be a people 
who will be known and characterized by joy and happiness and thankfulness because in Christ, God has shown himself to be faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful because you are somebody who does not waver in who you are. And we can look at our lives and we can look at the lives of the people that we read about in the book that you've given us to read about them in. And we can say your love has been steadfast and your faithfulness has endured and your promises have been kept. And we know that when we let our thankfulness and we let our trust rely on other things, we become a very discontented, dissatisfied people very quickly. So Lord, this morning I pray that we would become a people that we consider you in all of these ways and areas and things and losses and victories in our lives, knowing that all of these things come from you with a purpose that will be fulfilled for a life that will be preserved because you will not forsake the work of your hands. And I pray that we can practice hearts of thankfulness to you because you've given us the grace to do it. Because you've earned us through Christ a salvation that allows us to be a people of hope and gratefulness. But Lord, we need you to help us to do these things. Thank you for the future hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that someday we will feast with you. And right now, we get a taste of it. So Lord, as we sing to you now, as we give thanks to you, Lord, continue to refresh our hearts, reform our memories for the things that you've done for us and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Let's stand.